Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Practitioner. Today's episode is brought to you by Books of Discovery. So we have a quick message from Andrew Beal, the uh, author of Trail Guide to the Body. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. And thanks to Andrew Beal and Books of Discovery for their support. We really appreciate you supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Do be sure to check out their great offer as well. So, Till, good afternoon. How are you doing today? Doing great, Whitney. Really pleased to be here with you and with our guest. We have a guest. We do. We got Ruth Werner herself with us today. How are you doing, Ruth? (laughs) I'm very well, and it's, ha- it's a happy day to be here with you guys. All right. Yeah. We're very happy to have you with us. Thanks. So what should we, uh, what do you want to talk about today, Till? We've got some special things that we want to dive into here. Yeah, it was, I thought of you and I thought of Ruth both when I had this thought mulling around in my head. And the thought is, how do we deal with the risks we face as manual therapists, as massage therapists, certainly facing the coronavirus and all the safety concerns about that. But then how do we, it's a bigger question of like risk tolerance, risk mitigation, and the implications that that has on say our ethical considerations, the practical implications. And especially what do we do with the fact that there's so many different perceptions about what the risks are, yeah, and how we need to respond to them. Yeah, this is uh, some significant things. I think we're getting a little beyond too. There's been so much sort of information going out. And Ruth, you have been so, um, you know, wonderfully uh, sharing so much resources with everybody about, you know, dealing with especially the pathology end of this too. So we want to delve into a little bit today on some other aspects and facets of these topics around um, how do we make some bigger decisions, I think, not necessarily just the nitty gritty of how do we keep our rooms clean, but some some of the bigger mm-hmm. kinds of picture, bigger picture issues around the, the issues of the risk associated with our new new levels of practice. Yeah. Were you going to say something? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's an interesting question to ask a pathology teacher because everything I produce is about identifying potential risks and identifying ways to mitigate them. So, you know, back in the olden, olden days, <clears throat> and until I don't know about your early massage education, but Whitney and I have had this conversation, you know, we were taught some things are indicated and some things are contraindicated and you just have to sort of memorize which is which and go from there. Um, and of course, we know that that's not a realistic vision of the world and a more um, sophisticated and realistic education in in the around the issue of client safety is about how do we you know what are what is the worst thing that could happen in in a given situation if I'm careless if I'm undereducated if I'm not paying attention 
what are the best kinds of things that could happen in a, in this given situation if I'm skilled and compassionate and um, present? And how can I create a session where I minimize those possible risks and I maximize those possible benefits so that my client can give, you know, receive the best that I have to give them? And we make that decision for every single client every single day. And we did that pre-COVID and, and we will do that post-COVID. It's just that yeah. with the advent of this virus, it's added some new questions that are much harder to answer That's right. because it's That's because right. it's new. And I think, and I want to back up a little bit. We owe you the chance to introduce yourself. I just assume uh, that you even don't even need an introduction. We all know who you are, but maybe what would you want people to know about yourself in terms of introduction? Well, thank you. Um, <coughs> pardon me. The first thing to know about me is that I live with a chronic cough and it will go away after I talk for a little while, but I do not have COVID-19. I just have a chronic cough. Um, <laughs> The, the second thing is that I uh, uh, have built a career out of um, gathering information about diseases and conditions and interpreting it, that in a way that is relevant for massage therapy clinical decisions. And the uh, venue in which I've done that most, most completely is in the textbook. Uh, it's called The Massage Therapist's Guide to Pathology. Now in its seventh edition, published by our sponsor today, Books of Discovery. Thank you very much. Um, so I've been at this for a while because my first edition came out in 1998. And the thing that I like to emphasize about my background is that I am not formally trained in pathology. I am, I was a massage therapist, I am no longer. Um, and I just developed a really deep interest for a bunch of reasons about where massage therapy fits in terms of working with people who are not completely healthy. And, um, and I was someone who was willing to pursue that question and really dig into it at a time when not that many people were interested in it. And, and my work ended up being very useful and got published. And, you know, now the book is used in massage schools, um, all over the world, and which is wonderful. But I like to share that little bit of origin story because, because it is inevitable that everybody listening to this will eventually have a client with some condition that they know nothing about. And it's not in the textbook. And that means we're on our own. We have to find out what we can find out about, about it and, and make appropriate decisions about those risks and benefits. And that's sort of part of my goal is to present information so that people can make good clinical decisions, but also to, prevent it, to present a pattern so that people can fill in some of those blanks on their own when the day comes that someone comes in with a condition that, you know, you don't have a textbook that gives you specific guidance. Yep. So that's, that's why I thought of you when I thought of this conversation, because there are really some questions that I'm thinking through for myself, and they are one step back from the specific how-tos and even specific pathology kind of considerations. But I really did think of you, and I really thought of Whitney, and your input on these questions I got. Could I run some of them by you? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, it, you know, there was, we get, I get a lot of uh, social media contacts, get a lot of emails, get a lot of questions, people asking 
for me to help them with things, help them think through things. And the big one for a while was, how can I eliminate risk? The kind of stuff, Ruth, that you've made so many contributions to. How, what are the practical, clear things I can do to eliminate, or that we, they would say, risk to myself? And the questions have shifted to, if I can't reduce risk to zero, since it seems like COVID's gonna be with us for a while, how do I manage the risk that I work with or live with? And that bring, that gets me interested in the bigger question of what level of risk are people okay with and what are not okay with? I uh, have a particular perspective that might be different from somebody else. And it's particularly interesting that at this time in our cultural scenario that we can't even agree about what the risks are. And that way it becomes a really wicked problem, as they say in coding. It's a problem where we don't even agree what the problem is. Mm-hmm. So it becomes really hard to address and hard, hard, hard to solve. It seems, too, that we're, we're at a place where some of this is, is moving from being a strictly medically based decision to also having some very gray areas on the ethics world um, yeah. of, of making those determinations and decisions. And I think that's what makes it um, particularly more challenging for lots of people because there clearly isn't right and wrong science-based answers to many of these questions. Oh, that's such an important point. And then it also blends into um, questions of individual responsibility or collective responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our traditions and our cultural norms around that, the individual freedoms, our individual responsibility. Right. So, yeah, so I mean, just thinking back, <laughs> traveling as I was when COVID hit and being in Asia, it was such a clear collective uh, response in Taiwan. Say when we visited, we landed in Taiwan and we taught a class in masks and with 80 people there uh, and they had it dialed in. They knew exactly what to do. They had door monitors, temperature checkers, total disinfecting a couple times a day on and on. And they just clicked right into that. They'd been through a couple uh, practice rounds before with other uh, viruses. And it was, it was reassuring. At the time, it was like, is this too much? But in hindsight, no, they really had it dialed in. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the U.S. and seeing what a disparate set of approaches we're taking in here. It's got this question high in my mind. Yeah, and it's such a, such a weird combination of, you know, wanting to follow the science. But when you say, I want to follow the science, then you have to be willing to, like, change, <laughs> change on a dime. Yeah. Because the information that we're getting about the virus and about how it most easily spreads and all these different things that changes quickly. That's right. Um, and you know, and we're not good at making fast changes. Um, and there, there are identity things. I, I got a huge, the biggest amount of pushback I've gotten mm. um, in the material that I've produced is when I said that I can't make an argument that massage therapy is an essential service because I cannot demonstrate that someone will die if they don't get massage. That doesn't mean massage is not important. There's a big difference between essential and important. Yeah. Right. Right. And, um, you know, and this is where I have a difference of opinion with a lot of people that I respect and that's okay. We can, you know, we can, agree to disagree on some things like that. Um, But there are, in addition to ethical considerations, there are considerations of identity. There are considerations of financial survival. Huge, 
Huge. And yeah, and then that all gets tied up in political identity as well. And um, it becomes in the United States where we place this very high value on individualism and thinking for oneself, um, uh, it, it becomes a particularly difficult problem. And it has not been helped by the fact that um, the larger systems have not supported us in, in doing things like you saw in Taiwan or Hong Kong or, or places where the, the zeitgeist is, yeah, we're all in this together. We are, you know, here is our cultural standard. Everyone wears a mask now. Yeah, no, we don't agree on that. That's for sure. You know, interestingly, too, what you were saying, Ruth, about the the pushback that you got on that whole issue of essential services, you know, one of the other trends that I've been seeing a lot, um, and this is, you know, watching a lot of the discussions on social media now as we're trying to sort of dip our toes in the water of getting back to work, is, uh, you know, a lot of clients saying, I'm willing to take this risk because I need this. You know, they're the ones saying, I need this for pain relief or I need this for stress management or I need this and I'm willing to take that risk. And uh, so the, a lot of the practitioners now are, you know, faced with this situation of saying, you know, those that are not ready, it's like, no, I'm not taking that risk. But even though you might want to, it poses a really interesting kind of dilemma for, for many people out there, I think. Yeah. And it, and it, um, you know, one of the things to think about is what happens when, um, a, a massage therapist risk tolerance is different from a client's risk tolerance mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. In, in either direction. Right. But I think what right. we are going to see more often is clients saying, I'll do anything, just get me in on your table. Or clients saying, I really want to <laughs> come in on your table, but there is no way I'm wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, and uh, boy, that just pushes right up against some interesting boundaries, which is why people are going to really need to be careful about conscientiously analyzing every decision they want to make about what they want from their clients when they step in the door of that office. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other thing that we're dealing with here, which makes this different from any other kind of infection that we've seen in the past, is that the risk is not just between the two people in the room, Mm -hmm. right? The risk is between the two people in the room plus everybody in the bubble of those two people in the room. Yeah. So, you know, your client may say, I'm in so much pain and I don't want to get back on opioid pain relievers. That's, it is more important for me to, to, you know, get a massage so that I don't have to go down this other route that feels really, really dangerous to me. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a really compelling argument, right? Mm -hmm. But if that massage therapist has an autoimmune disease, lives with someone who is under treatment for cancer or who has an autoimmune disease or who is elderly and has a history of diabetes or whatever. You know, the risk goes outside the doors of the, of the session room. It's not just about and me anymore. It's not just about me and you. Exactly. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. And that's really different from the risks that we see say, you know, such as they are, I mean, they're really, it's really easy to mitigate risks for working with clients who are HIV positive. Although I still encounter massage therapists who, who don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the risks for working with a client who has hepatitis B or hepatitis C, which is much easier to spread through casual contact. Um, uh, the risk is just between those two people. Yes. It's not that you're going to take it home and cough on your five-year-old. 
Yeah, that's okay, one so, of the things that I think has been, uh, excuse me, Till, but I was just going to say one of the things that's been troubling to me watching this process is it seems the the inability of so many people to think in those broader terms and to think outside that box of like the number of, of potential people who are in that sphere of influence. Okay, so you're saying it's, it's frustrating or it's difficult to see that people can't think beyond their personal impact and how it spreads collectively. Well, Is that what you're saying? Certainly some people are having a hard time with that, yeah. Yeah, and then there's the question of objective and subjective differences or even the data we agree upon or don't agree upon. Because somebody, I'd be curious to hear, Ruth, what you, uh, how is COVID similar or different than other, say, pathology considerations? You mentioned mm-hmm. HIV, you mentioned hepatitis. Yeah? The yeah. difference you highlighted already is that it's a con- it's, it has a contagion factor. It's much that more contagious, yeah. surely. Is it, you know. Tell a, me more and, about. Obje- <laughs> the natural comparison is to flu. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think maybe one of the silver linings out of what we're going through now is we may, as a culture, and certainly as a profession, I hope, develop less tolerance for the risks around flu, because who needs it, right? So, and you know, if you can mitigate flu at the same time, you know, the the risk of spreading flu in the same way that we mitigate the risk of spreading COVID, then that's just that's just bonus, mm. right? Um, You're telling me I need to get a vaccination. Till, that is your choice. You get to decide that. I will tell you, if I were in practice, I would absolutely get the vaccine. And I do anyway, and I'm not in practice. That's right. But that's, um, you know, I'll stand on that hill, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Vaccines work. I think people who are engaged in public health should probably get a flu vaccine unless they have a really compelling reason not to, which is um, a wormhole that maybe we can skip today. <laughs> I'm sorry I brought it up. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist that can of wormholes because yeah. it does get into that sort of uh, controversy or those strong feelings too, where there's debate around, uh, well, isn't it my choice what I do? And that's the same debate around vaccinations. In some mm-hmm. ways, the collective impact is the individual choice. Well, and then you come against, you know, then you come up in this argument between um, uh, freedom and responsibility. Uh-huh. Right. So you yeah. have the freedom to make the choice, for instance, to skip your flu vaccine. That's cool. Um, but then I think you have a responsibility to, you know, if you're in a public health setting to say, I have not had a flu vaccine. Do you want to work together? Right. That's right. Right. So that's I mean, I, you know, I don't yeah, know. I'm that's uh, yeah. no, I'm with you. We're going to get mail. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Uh, my goal is not to avoid mail on this okay. topic, by the way. I wouldn't have so, this up. Till, I've got a question for you. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to necessarily ask you to be the expert on what's <laughs> happening you. in Asia, but since oh. you were there and have a perception of, of, you know, a real life person perception of what was going on as this virus was percolating yeah. in Asia compared to what's happened here. What is your sense about, like, in terms of the way people get informed about these kinds of things? Because what I wonder is, you know, because we have such a rampant and open social media world in our current culture here that is so susceptible to all kinds of of information. I mean, I was watching this video the other day of uh, this argument at some city council meeting of people that didn't want to wear masks and 
this woman was testifying and saying that, you know, she didn't believe in the six foot distance between people because she knew that's just something that the government was doing so they could start scanning us. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. that all these conspiracy theories of things that are out there, um, I wonder, is that as pervasive in some of these other cultures, which have been more consolidated in their response of, of doing this? You know, what, what your take is on that? No, I, I appreciate the question. And the total disclaimer, I am not an expert. I was a traveler briefly yeah. through Taiwan and Thailand, and I've spent a little time in Japan in the past. But that's it. So just, just based on my personal guesses about the difference, you know, as well as my conversations and reading, um, it's a very different consideration, let's say, in Taiwan. In Taiwan, we got there, there were clear laws about what we we needed to do as foreigners coming in. We needed to wear a mask in public. We needed to have our temperature checked. Uh, It seemed pretty reasonable. Uh, And as I understand it, when I talk to people there, I'd say, how do you feel about wearing the mask? Are you concerned about COVID? Are you scared? Most of them said, no, I'm not genuinely scared or concerned. Our government really has this under control and is thinking about it and is helping guide us to make the decisions we want to we want to make for ourselves and why would i not wear a mask that's like that's putting my you and my family and my society at risk if i'm not wearing a mask that wasn't even a, a the people i talked to that wasn't even a consideration mm-hmm. the puzzle yeah now when i told that story to one of my neighbors here back here in the us he i said it was really interesting the difference to say between the taiwanese people i talked to and people i talked to here and he said, oh, yeah, they're a lot more conformist, aren't they? And I said, well, from, our, from a certain point of view, say here in America, yeah, that, we could describe that as conformist. The government tells you what to do and you comply. Mm-hmm. But that's, I didn't, that word didn't occur to me while I was there, actually. It was more uh, collectivist. That word occurred to me quite a bit. It's like mm-hmm. most decisions were referenced to how does this impact the group? Yeah. How does this mm-hmm. impact the other people around me? Right. And we're not that we're good at a lot of good stuff here in this country, but that's not one of our long suits really yeah. thinking about the collective, you could say. Yeah, we are the rugged individualists and we have, <clears throat> here's another rabbit hole that you guys get to control. <laughs> you know, a lot of us, a lot of people have um, skepticism, healthy or not, of messages that come from the government. There you go. Mm-hmm. And because the messages we've had from our uh, local and national government in relation to this event have been inconsistent, it's really hard to feel like your feet are on solid ground. No. Or if we had one message, <laughs> I'm trying not to swear, but you know, wear the mask, yeah. uh-huh. keep your distance. It might be, you know, it might be overkill. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, You know, stay inside if you can limit your shopping trips, whatever. If we'd had one consistent message that the people in the system, the system, meaning basically state and national governments were willing to reiterate and enforce. Certainly there would still be pushback. Certainly there would still be distrust. But I truly think that if we had more consistent messaging, we would feel safer and, and be safer if the messaging were in alignment with the science. So you're talking about a science-based authoritarian government would be a good thing right now. 
Oh, authoritarian is a hard word. <laughs> That's where the conversation goes. I'm still in the rabbit hole with you, basically. Yeah. And I'm thinking of my son, who is, it's really hard to make the case to him that um, anything is reliable. That's his point of view. It's yeah. like, you can't believe anything you read any, anymore. And as soon as I bring up a point, he says, where'd you read that? The internet? There you go. Your source <laughs> itself is suspect. <laughs> So Isn't that, that, funny that, that goes everything. going that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's really, uh, it's really rich. Sometimes it's been really hard with him because he is a skeptic about everything. Mm-hmm. And he is, he's a skeptic about the government. Not that the, the government as an entity has done much to help its credibility you know, at any level of our government. And at least in this country, but at the same time, <laughs> it's a crisis of, of confidence, you could say, yeah. in sources of information. And I'd, I'd include science for him. Well, for him, yes, science is suspect. Even. Because scientists have been systematically discredited, uh-huh. not necessarily fairly. I, to me, in my mind, and, and again, this is completely opinion, but you seem to be okay with that. Um, one of the biggest casualties of this pandemic is um, whatever has happened to the Centers for Disease Control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that whole branch of government has become so heavily politicized and I, and they are not, you know, it's been demonstrated that they are not collecting evidence in the way that is in accordance with the way epidemiologists believe this should be collected. Mm -hmm. And consequently it's not being reported in an accurate or fair way. And, um, and it, breaks my heart to not be able to go to the CDC and say, okay, here's what the CDC says about these statistics. But instead I have to go to Johns Hopkins University and Worldometer and the University of Washington has a statistical project going and I have to try and piece together an understanding from multiple sources because my one source has been kneecapped and it, it is, both heartbreaking and it makes it so much harder because it is not supposed to be massage therapist's job to figure out what's the safest thing. That's why we rely, that's why we have laws. That's why we have regulation. You know, that whole purpose of that is client safety. Um, And if we can't rely on the, um, the, the, the social contract where we, we enter a licensed profession and then we get guidance about how to be safe within that profession. Where does that leave us? It's yeah. not fair. And I totally get how upsetting this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads people to feel angry and scared and looking for narratives that suit their understanding of the world that they need to be true because otherwise they're going to lose their house right? Yeah. And, um, and none of this should be the way we make decisions. And it's all very easy for me to say, if you're living in a place where the positivity rate is going up and your hospitalizations are going up and your hospitals are, you know, approaching capacity, um, this is not the time to reopen your practice, but I'm not going to lose my house. Yeah. Yeah. Because of this, because of this epidemic, and and there are people who are really, really at risk for losing everything that they put into their careers. You've named a really important rabbit hole that I want to dive into next, and that is where does self-interest play into our risk tolerance? 
or does our perspective influence the, the way we perceive risk? But we got to do a halftime sponsor break first. And our halftime sponsor today is Handspring Publishing, which was the publisher I chose for my book when I looked for a publisher for the book I wanted to write. I was lucky enough to have had two offers, one from a huge international media company and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. I'm glad I chose them because not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and as they say, all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Amazing to have them as a sponsor along with our other sponsor today. Whitney, you want to add anything to that? Well, I would say, yeah, Handspring has a new instructional webinar series called Moved to Learn. It's a regular series of each 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors there. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out and have a, a look at that excellent catalog of resources that are over there. And be sure to use the code TTP, like the thinking practitioner, at checkout for a discount. So we Thank Handspring again very much for their sponsorship of the podcast here. So, Till, I'm going to go back down that rabbit hole that we started to open up here. But one other thing I just wanted to also uh, ask about or, or, you know, reflect on here is that, um, and again, this is, you know, a curious question looking at us comparative in a sort of a cultural comparative way to other, um, uh, you know, cultures that are having to deal with this in different ways. It seems like in this culture here in the United States, we have become so... Um, susceptible to spin on stories and you know you have one piece of a story so for example the 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 groups of individuals who really want to say this thing is going away it's getting better will tack on to the statistic that the overall death rates from COVID-19 are appearing to decrease in terms of the rate that is true. and that's what gets uh, just promulgated extensively. Those uh, other people on the other side of the fence that want to talk about how bad this is getting, will focus on the uh, infection rates that seem to be just uh, exploding out of control right now. Uh, and so, it, you know, again, it becomes very difficult to kind of know if you're not thinking critically and looking at a whole big picture, you know, how to interpret those, the different facets of those kinds of things, because, uh, you know, each sort of group or individual will try to spin that to, to their own um, perspective so much. Yeah, that's true. And that speaks to what I was saying about, you know, we look for the narratives that support our needs. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> the thing about statistics, you know, lies, damned lies and statistics. Um, I've lost my train of thought because I love that. <laughs> no, I know. It's, I'm with you. I'm but with the you. thing about, you know, the thing about, oh, I know where I was going. Um, what we read in the headlines and what we look for to read because you know it might suit what we want to understand um so we're just sort of you know reinforcing our our echo chambers um is that we must rely on journalists to interpret the science for us and and because of the world we live in journalists will do that in the way that you know writes headlines that get the get the most clicks um a couple of weeks ago we had two very public announcements about asymptomatic spreading that were in diametric opposition to each other. 
And, you know, one was from the World Health Organization that said, our studies suggest that asymptomatic shedding and, and, and the, the ability to catch the virus from someone who has no symptoms is very low. And the Annals of Internal Medicine said something exactly the opposite. And um, that is just so unfairly confusing to consumers. Um, and I, you know, I'm not saying we should limit journalists or be authoritarian about what journalists are allowed to publish, not at all. But, it, but it, it's that kind of thing that makes our lives really difficult. And you know, I've had the, um, the opportunity and the honor to try to be um, an interpreter for some of this with the understanding that everything comes through my personal bias about where we are with the virus and, and, the, and the association between freedom and responsibility. That's, that feeds into my, my bias a lot. Um, but I, you know, it, it just, for people who are in healthcare, it, it, it makes it very difficult for us. Um, I want to say another thing too, before we uh, go, mm -hmm. if you don't mind, no, uh, I have it. another, I have another train of thought that might open up another, another branch here. Um, I was on a panel yesterday and, uh, and answering some questions and my panel partner, um, was a doctor who is an epidemiologist and, and immunologist who's doing research on COVID. Um, so that was really exciting. And one of the questions had to do with, you know, safety and reopening and should we wait for a vaccine? And his response was, uh, don't put your eggs in that basket. He said, you know, we might get to a vaccine this year, maybe. It will mm -hmm. not be widely available. It won't be the right choice for mm -hmm. lots and lots of people. And because of the odd ways that this virus affects immune system reactivity, it may take several vaccines in order to really have long lasting effect. And we won't know that for a long time. That's my so, understanding too. That's my understanding. Even the best case scenarios are medium to long-term scenarios. Yeah, exactly. You know, because we're seeing antibody de degradation, but it, it's, it's even more complicated than yes. that. And I learned a lot. It was great. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's another branch of, of, of push in the medical community, which is to really work hard on finding treatment options that work. Um, right. You know, so that how if can we help people survive sick, COVID? Yeah, they have a yeah, they have a better they have a better chance of recovering. There's, I mean, and there's all yes. kinds of nuance and and other things that we're not considering in this, like long term effects and what is this? Absolutely. You know, what are our COVID survivors going to look like in 30 years? That's right. Who you know who who develop pulmonary fibrosis at age 40? Um, that's a really really crappy disease. And, and uh, musculoskeletal conditions and neurological conditions. Neurological things, all kinds of things. And we have no idea what those repercussions are going to be like. But Which, uh, not to find a trite silver lining, but maybe it is, there's a role for our work oh, yes. in the future. And the learning we need to do about the long-term effects of this virus on survivors. There's going to be a role for us in that picture. Right? And I have been working on, on some material about working with COVID survivors and at least in the short run, you know, things we need to be looking out for. Um, but, you know, certainly plans on, on going back to revisit that when we see what that looks like in the long run. Well, I want to make sure we have time to talk about this idea of a new normal too. Because that's been a phrase that's been thrown around a lot as we get used to things as they are and as we deal with our fears and our cautions around risk and we start to think about what, how do I want to operate? Essentially, it's like a new ballgame. 
Mm-hmm. And it's in bogging that's happening, as you've alluded to, in, in the absence of surety. There's so much uncertainty that most of the adaptation revenue do is around unknowns as opposed mm-hmm. to things that we can fix. Mm-hmm. And I ran across this idea of hedonic adaptation that I wanted to run by you guys. Yeah, yeah I'm eager to hear you explain that. Yeah, I've heard you allude to that before. In, yeah, in maybe I've already told you about it, Whitney, but it's, it's pretty simple. It's yeah. the idea that we get used to things mm-hmm. and that we return to a kind of baseline state of happiness or hedonic, our hedonic set. Mm. Irregardless of what's happening outside the external circumstances, we tend to gravitate toward a certain set point of happiness. Mm-hmm. And that's good news uh, and bad news. The good news is that when something really challenging and awful happens, like an epidemic, that eventually we find ways to make that normal. And this is, you know, there's so many stories of that from life circumstances from war, from strife, from other mm-hmm. epidemics, from personal health crises, where people get to a place where this is just what is, and I still have a satisfying life, still mm-hmm. satisfying life, even in this scenario. The downside is, um, well, no, it's the same phenomena that happens when something really good happens to us. Falling in love is the classic example. The first kiss, the first date, the first whatever, has a specialness that fades because we, mm-hmm. get, we return to that kind of baseline of mm-hmm. usual experience. Uh, so the good ones, well, yeah? I, I'm sorry, but I'll, yeah, I'll push back and say there's a downside as well in terms of people being willing to get used to things that really they should not be getting used to. That's the, yeah, okay. There's a, yeah, yeah right. But you're thinking of what? Tell me what you mean. Oh, um, let's say, you know, and you'll see this argument. COVID might affect 5% of the population. It might kill 1% of those people. That's a risk I can live with. Gotcha. Well, you know, if that adds up to 800,000 to, to a million people in the United States dying, give me your list of who it's okay to put on, you know, put, put, it, put in that category, mm-hmm. right? I, that's the mm-hmm. thing. If it's an avoidable, if it's, if it's avoidable through the systems that are supposed to be creating structure for us to live in, then, that's un- then it's an unacceptable risk. You're saying you don't want to, people to get used to the idea of other people dying. You don't want that to become an unnecessarily. And we, in a certain way, we've done that with flu, right? So, you know, flu kills in a good year, 20 to 35,000 people in a bad year, upwards of 60,000 people. And, you know, an early thing that we heard in, 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 in this pandemic was, well, flu kills more people. That's no longer true. Why aren't we fussing about flu? And, you know, I'm fussing about flu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are unnecessary deaths, too. Yeah. Okay. So the, uh, the other side of that conversation is where do you place this in the, in the level of threat from all causes? So there's the arguments say that economic uh, disadvantage mm-hmm. also causes deaths and disability and harm. And for every, I remember seeing the statistic, every 3% increase in unemployment results in a tripling of alcoholism deaths. Right. Alcoholism, right. drug abuse, yeah. um, domestic violence, all of these things are things that need to be, that need to be weighed in balance for sure. I'm absolutely not denying that. It's not a, it's, it's not an all or nothing kind of weight. Yes. Um, but I would does, say that's does not the death card be, uh, always trump? And if it does, 
how do we weigh the direct deaths from COVID infection against the follow-on deaths mm -hmm. that might happen from other course of action too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the most, or one of the more um, challenging facets of this that, that Ruthie alluded to earlier too, uh, in terms of the spread and the contagion of this particular disease. And this is where something that I think we're watching right now in the United States with the shift of uh, cases moving towards younger people because of the uh, increased um, or let's say decreased tolerance to staying home amongst many of these young people. And, you know, we're talking mainly like sort of the, especially quite young people, meaning the college age individuals, the, the 18 to 25 year old age group. Um, and in particular, you know, we know that uh, the level of cognitive development has not finished mm -hmm. in many of these people. Uh, we just know that scientifically, they don't have the same capabilities to think uh, complex uh, analytical perspectives about. Angel's not in the room. You, is I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to quote <laughs> you to my 21 year old son. <laughs> right, yeah, right. So he's not in the room, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we know that there are um, difficulties in seeing those kinds of perspectives. I heard this crazy story this morning about, I won't say what state this was occurring in, but a bunch of. Um, college age kids having COVID-19 parties, oh, yes. getting together to see who's going to get sick. <laughs> and then there's like, like a cash payout or something. Yeah. Like, really? really? Take a uh, kitty for the guy yeah. that loses. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Well, there's been a, there's been an uptick here in Boulder from yeah. frat parties. Yeah. From, yeah. you know. Yeah. And this is and, the summer. You know, I mean, it's not, to, there were schools not fair. in session. Yeah. Mm. Right. And to be fair, you know, th this is a population of people who are less likely to die, but they are still going to the hospital and they are still consuming, um, you know, they're out of the, to be sick means to not be adding to our societal well-being. Um, they may be consuming resources that they wouldn't, you know, in terms of medical care, Yes. that they wouldn't otherwise need to consume. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and so we all end up paying for that in one way or another. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's great that younger people usually don't die, uh -huh. but that <laughs> doesn't make it easier to manage as a, as a doesn't make it easier to manage. And, it, and when and did 21 year olds ever make risk calculations? When did 21 year olds ever make that? Well, that's the thing. I mean, they're always, they've been bulletproof uh, for yeah. all kinds of things, you know, alcohol yeah. problems and, you know, crazy things that we do at that age that are life-threatening, you know? So uh, we know that, that that lack of frontal lobe development has been going on for a long time and it's had other kinds of negative impacts as well. But uh, Okay, two topics I want to make sure we hit on before we run out of time. Uh, what? How do we communicate or create or help our clients with their perception of risk in coming to us? You know, because like you mentioned, there's differences. Some some of us are getting calls from clients who are ready to come before we are. Other other clients, like uh, one of my friends, went to a therapist who was open and, and following the guidelines. But he said he got the impression that she was watching him for cues more. The therapist was hmm. watching the client more for cues, and that she was okay either way. She could not have her mask on. She could. Uh, but he was making sure that he was comfortable, which he perceived as her not quite. Of course, the only wonder is, okay, so what did he do with the last client? 
Did right. you let the last client have no, you know, no mask on? Those kind of complex questions too. And he said, he's been seeing her for years. My friend, the client said, I got the sense that she's a little bit desperate for work, that mm -hmm. she was really willing to make it work however I need to, which didn't reassure me mm -hmm. in terms of my concerns about COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, and, you know, what and are so your this kind of gets in. This kind of gets into something that you and I touched on in one of our previous episodes, talking about sort of the divisions in our profession about are we a healthcare practice or are we some you know other facet of this? Because now every single massage and manual therapy practitioner has to act like a healthcare professional to a significant degree, no matter where they work, no matter what they're trying to do, because they have a lot more things that I think they need to think about along healthcare practices than they might have thought about before. Are you talking like even the way my hair cutter needs to be, act like that? Is that Absolutely. what you're referring to? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. oh, oh, yeah. Hang on though, because, well, I don't know necessarily, but I haven't uh, clearly have not been to get my hair cut in several months, but um, the estheticians, the people who are doing skincare yes. in many ways are way ahead of us. And have been, you know, the good ones have been for years. To tell. Well, I mean, in terms of the way they manage hygiene and the way they, you know, manage crowding or distance or whatever. That's, uh, I, you know, I understand this from my work with ABMP and their whole their whole reach into the esthetician world. Yes. Um, right. So, so that's an interesting thing. But I, I will I will share that. In the past week, I have had communications with people who are who are back to work, who were nervous, but you know used the guidelines that are available and felt like that the parameters in their local area were okay for them. You know, yes. in terms of what they what made them feel safe. Um, and they describe the what that was like, and by and large, people are doing fine, right? You learn how to work with a mask. If you're in a place where you need to wear gloves, you learn how to use gloves. You bump the temperature down in your room because everybody's, you know, got a little more gear on. Um, you know, you clear out all the tchotchkes from your room and that makes it easy to clean fast. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so I've been reading some really nice, positive, it feels so good to be back at work kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. That may, you know, and, 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 and what I want to add to that till, and this sort of gets back to where we started today, which is, you know, how do you assess risk levels? There's not a one size fits all answer to this, right? And so for someone living in an area where local infection rates and hospitalization rates and death rates are down and have been on a downward trend for a couple of weeks, um, you know, might feel okay about opening their doors under, you know, with, with the caveat that they may have to step out, step away again, if something weird happens. Um, but given guidance that feels trustworthy and that is evidence-based, um, they feel pretty confident. And, yeah. and the, you know, we've talked about the value of ritual, right? That, that the ritual of coming in and you know, doing your hand sanitizer, maybe the therapist and the client does their hands together. 
the, ri- the, the ritual of, you know, here's the mask I'm going to give you for your time in our room to de- together today. The ritual of the pre-screening questions and the temperature taking, if that's what you do. And, the, you know, all of that helps to create the experience of being able to feel like you are being well tended. And I think that can serve us really, really well. I would love to see massage therapists take our rituals, which we may not even have noticed or realized that we had, you know, and be really more conscientious about them in terms of yes. creating the, the sense of safety and care. Right. We do that anyway, even before COVID. We were right. creating that sense of safety, of, of uh, receptivity, mm-hmm. comfort, being willing to trust and relax. Regard. Yeah, and just in our manner, but also in the whole way we set up the logistics of our practice, all mm-hmm. those things that we've thought about, talked about, worked with for years. And yeah, you're, I like what you're saying. This is supercharging that function into an area that's crucial. And it's right. a make and or break situation be, for people. And, it, and it's not going to be the right time to go that route for everybody. Yes. Right? Yeah, you, I think that's that was my original question is, uh, one, if I accept that there's some level of risk in going back to work, how do I work out for myself my own level of risk tolerance? Since there's no way to objectively assess or calculate the actual uh, cost or benefit, you could say, of this action or that one, what do I do to work with my own tolerance of that risk that's going to exist? Mm-hmm. We've talked about some really clear uh, uh, measures you said, or or we've talked about the difficulty in finding yes, difficulty finding things to trust, but that there that how important that is is to find things that do make sense to us and reassure us. We've talked about the impact that our choices might have on our clients, how they might perceive our choices and their own level of comfort. I like what you said about ritual. Anything else you want to say about Whitney or? Ruth, about that thing, how we just had to go back to work before I bring in our last topic that I want to talk about? I think, no, go ahead. I think, you know, this is a a big, deep thing that we didn't uh, probably, we certainly don't have an easy answers for, but, you know, it is it is interesting to me in particular to watch and try to grapple with or watch people who are grappling with this question of like, I'm okay, you know, like for example, at the beginning of the of the uh, the problem, it's like, okay, I'll be off work for a while. I can I can take that. I can yeah, deal with right. that. Right. And then there comes a point at which, like, all right, now my bank account is empty. I have yeah. to take on a greater degree of risk now and go back to work. I don't want to. I'm not ready. I don't think it's safe. But I don't have a choice. You know, I have to go back and and do something or or you know whatever they're faced with. Lots of people are finding themselves an increasing number of people are finding themselves in that boat of really having to make that decision about what risk am I willing to take? But, you know, economics begins to, it's like the, the, the scales begin to shift. Economics begins to take a bigger um, perspective than it initially had because your resources are gone. The rainy day fund is gone. You know, the, the borrowed money's gone. The unemployment benefits are running out or whatever it is, you know, that's right. Yeah. And you know, in, in, in an ideal world that, would not have that would not be a major factor in making this decision but you know this is the world that we live in the yes. other thing i want to point out is you know we're the, the 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 massage therapist i'm seeing in my head as we're talking about this decision making process is a self-employed person and there's a huge 
population in our field of people who are who don't have the freedom to make yes, the choice about absolutely. when they go back yeah. to work mm-hmm. and they have only limited freedoms if you like about um or conditions the conditions of work that they're in and i've had you know communications with people who are in um other health provider offices or franchises or whatever where they have not been thrilled at the mitigations that are being used in those settings and and they feel like they don't have a lot of options yeah um and it's heartbreaking it is it's really difficult and a lot of these issues we could translate to the things you have to think through as a clinic owner mm-hmm. or a spa manager, you know, the, the same considerations and questions are there, maybe at a bigger scale because there's people that are you're responsible for. Exactly. So the one I want to make sure that at least we touch on is this idea of the diversity and disparity and divisiveness in our views of what is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it's a huge topic, but that's, that's part of the moving ground that we're standing upon. So we can't even agree on what the risks are. We can't even agree on uh, what the measure, if the measures are even needed, you could say you're going to have clients that feel differently than you do. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have colleagues that feel that we have office mates. That's another one. I've got a, a note from someone who says, my office mate isn't wearing a mask. Right. What should I do? So this, this diversity or disparity that we have between us. Um, do you want to say something or do you want me to share my latest thinking on that? I'd love to hear what you have to think, what you have to say about that. <laughs> okay, Whitney. Oh, go for it. I was, this came to me and I really, I loved it. I laughed out loud. I've been heartbroken actually for, you know, maybe three and a half years now about, maybe longer about the divisiveness and disparity and difficulty that I have. It's, I've taken it on as my own personal project to try to understand uh points of view outside of my personal bubble, outside of my echo chamber. And I really valued some of those conversations, but there's some point I had the opportunity to say to sit with the pastor of some high ups in Washington. He has a congregation in Washington, DC and has government officials in his congregation. So it was an interesting opportunity to really get a sense of a different world that I'm not usually a part of and has a different political point of view. It was so valuable. It was so eye-opening. It helped me understand things in a whole helpful way. And then at some point, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go back to Boulder now. (laughs) Can I just go back to my bubble for a little bit? Can I just go? This is almost too upsetting, the fact that we see things so differently. Yeah. Uh, So this is what I've been grappling with for a while. Here's the one that made me smile the other day. I realized, what if that isn't in its nature a problem? What if that is our tradition as a country? What if that diversity, that disparity, even that divisiveness is what we've had from the beginning and what we've adapted to try to work within? This is a big one. We're straining at the seams. We're having some difficulty. But what if this individualism, yeah, and this tension between individual freedom and collective responsibility is the very thing that we've been working with the whole time and the thing that our country is built around? I felt like an instant patriot. (laughs) yeah i like that perspective i do too and there's something that's that's very enriching about recognizing device recognizing differences of opinion certainly recognizing differences of opinion and and different worldviews that can make you a more full make me at least a, a, a more full person um which is why i you know, I take comfort in my echo chamber, but I 
try to have permeable walls in it. <laughs> um, and the, you know, the question for me is, as you are, uh, oh, oh yeah, I'm kind of going down two roads here. You know, one is, as you are trying to expand your horizons about people's points of view, can you do that without damaging yourself, right? I mean, there's a, there's a reason we avoid spending time with people who make us feel really upset. And, and, you know, it's good to look at why that, why we're upset. Mm. For me, if the why I'm upset is because I, I feel like this person is blind to the science and, and is unwilling to open their eyes to that, then I'm willing to, then I can, I can step away from that and not feel terrible about it other than saying, you know, God bless you. I hope things work out for you. Right. Um, I'm looking for a next level. I'm with you on that, by the way. But I yeah. think, and it's not like I want everything to be okay. It's not a nihilism of everything's relative at all. Uh-huh. It, there's, it's so important to disagree. And it's right. so important to know. And I know the three of us are science-based and have that as a value for ourselves. But there's a way that I want to understand why other people wouldn't. And even yeah. understand that I'm going to be in the same country as them. And I'm going to be neighbors with them and I'm going to be in the same families as them. Mm-hmm. And so how do we go from here, even with those strong disagreements and completely different maps? Yeah, I'm filled with admiration. Um, I, I'd love to <laughs> share just a little Please. anecdote and it doesn't even go anywhere. But my, yeah. my son is a paramedic. Um, so he, he's working in that field and he's working with the police and with firefighters. And what that means is he's working with people who are of a really different political persuasion than him. Um, These are people who believe that COVID is a hoax or who believe that it's not nearly as dangerous as the media makes it out to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And his life is in their hands. And so he has to figure out a way to feel okay about his partnerships, his real deep, important partnerships with these people whose, whose attitude about how the world works is so radically different from his. And I'm not sure I could do it. Yeah. I give him all kinds of credit. And, and, and another place where I, where I find this in my own life right now, Till, is I'm trying to, um, I'm, in, I'm, I'm actually engaged in a book club we're reading, How to Be an Anti-Racist by um, Ibram Kendi. And it is making me fabulously uncomfortable. Yes. And I'm, you know, trying to do podcasts and, and, uh, you know, consume media that show me where my, uh, tunnel vision has been, where my blinders have been. And I hate it. It's really, really hard. And, and I feel a responsibility, um, as a, as a loving human on the planet that this is, this is my job, but boy, it is really hard. And then, so then can we take (laughs) that same discomfort and that same drive to the political spectrum? Could we look um, at diversity in a bigger sense, in the sense that we, we're in a country with people that are really different from us? There's a di- All right, now we get into some ethical things, and I don't know how much this is going to apply to your webcast. I am completely at home with people who are politically different from me if I feel like they aren't evil, Right. But for people whose political difference from me manifests as a sense of um, white supremacy or manifests as a sense of um, uh, xenophobia, I, you know, that is intractable. It's a lot harder for me to want to understand them. 
I think that gets back to, to to some things that we had mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts about the ideal, at least the ideal distinction between academic debate and personal attacks that happen so much in the social media world. You know, it would be great if on all of these various different subjects, we could approach them from the perspective of academic debate, of recognizing that individuals have different perspectives and different opinions, but look at the uh, evidence and the presentation and the arguments that they present and, and, and actually, you know, really look at that and say like, okay, let me see if I can get in your shoes and see that from your point of view. But uh, you know, we have just become such a culture of, of divisiveness that uh, is, you know, it seems like that becomes just almost impossible now. That's right. And it's, this is Ruth. I like what you said. I like that we get to a place where we probably disagree too, because there's, the argument is not let's tolerate everything. No. On my side at all. It's not like everything is okay. White supremacy you named, for example. For me, it's that, can I take the same value I have toward diversity and apply it to places that really uh, I find objectionable or find ways that are really different ways of seeing things than I have before I go to the evil place, say, just because of the difference there. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say for me, it has to do with whether I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm happy to try to be teachable if I feel like the person I'm working with is also happy to try to be teachable. Um, and if they're not, um, yeah. I, I'm, I am not as um, big hearted, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not that yeah. evolved. No, I understand that point of view too. This, uh, we got we to gotta wrap it up for the day. Yeah, we really do. We yeah. went way down a rabbit hole. It's good. No, the last <laughs> thing is this idea of cultural norms as our cultural immune system. So these questions of trying to decide what's okay and what's not okay is mm-hmm. a way that our culture tries to sort that out as well. And, and what's the interesting next in the immune system is essentially what the immune system does is decide who's in and who's out. That's right. What's self, right. what's Who's out in there. the club. Yeah. All right, Whitney. So, yeah. Well, we want to thank you, Ruth, very much for joining us today. It's always <laughs> great to have these discussions with you. And, and as we said, we could go on and on about this. But uh, thank you so much for your insight uh, and insightful comments uh, there today. Um, and we would like to thank all of our listeners again, as always, thank you so much for tuning into the show and we hope you get some, uh, uh, interesting things out of it. You can stop by the site for show notes, transcripts, and extras over there at the thinking until where can people find you on the interwebs? Advanced dash trainings.com or in social media, just at my name to Luca. How about you, Whitney? Uh, I can also be found over at the Academy of clinical massage.com and on social under my name as well. And you can send us questions uh, over to info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much for the folks that have been sending us some mail and some Questions, love letters, hate mail, all welcome. Yep, we want it all. I'm going to make a separate domain that goes to info at till for hate mail at the thinking practitioner. I'll let you handle all those. I I know how to set up a forwarder that bounces it right back at you. All right. Thank you. Follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple podcasts or wherever else you listen and tell a friend about the show. Thanks Ruth. Thanks Whitney. Hey, thanks you guys. Thank you both. And we'll uh, do it again sometime soon. I hope. (laughs) 